proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am your host, as well as the pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors and planters, as well as churchmen, and each week we will have a confessional brother come share their collective wisdom and experience. And in today's podcast, we have Anglican pastor and church planter, Henry Jansma. Pastor Henry, how are you, sir? Yeah, good afternoon, Aaron. We are so thrilled to have you on the show. You're actually our first Anglican, so we have much to learn from you today. Well, I hope there's something there that I might be able to share. Would you mind giving our listeners just a quick uh, 30-second bio of who you are and what you've been up to? Uh, Yes, I can do that. Um, I'm a first-generation American. My parents emigrated from uh, the Netherlands, from Friesland, after the Second World War. I was born and raised in northern New Jersey. I uh, married and uh, had two boys who are now adults and living on their own. Uh, I went to Westminster Seminary, Northeastern Bible College in Essex Fells, New Jersey. And then after Westminster, went to England to the University of Durham, where I finished my PhD and uh, was ordained in the Church of England in 1991 serving in Lincolnshire for that time, coming back in 2001 on 9-11, and spent some time in Canada before uh, returning to uh, work in the Episcopal Church, and then later uh, becoming an Anglican uh, about uh, two years ago. So from your educational background, you have attended a Baptist Bible College in uh, Northeastern, and you graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary, where you studied under Sinclair Ferguson and amongst other scholars there. And you have your uh, PhD, and currently you serve as a uh, Anglican priest. You you have quite the uh, eclectic background, if I could say. Well, I'd say it's broad. Certainly, it's it's something that um, uh, the Church of England also deliberately does. Uh, to make sure that you have a wide experience of uh, of parishes and pastoral situations. Hmm. Now, you were you were actually converted um, at the Baptist College, but your background was you, as you said, you grew up in a, a Dutch Reformed home. And do you mind sharing a little bit about that journey into Christ? Well, yes, thank you, Aaron. Um, my parents were nominal Christians. Uh, it was the thing to do even back then in the 60s to uh, send your children uh, to church. So uh, I, uh, I learned my catechism and uh, at 13 uh, left the church. Uh, and in high school, uh, a friend was attending a Baptist youth group and he uh, shared the gospel with me. And I was converted at that time. And from an early time did have a sense of, uh, of a call to uh, gospel ministry. Uh, and so from there went uh, to Northeastern, 
but while there, uh, in our systematics class, uh, our textbook was uh, uh, Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. And our lecturer told us to just skip the parts uh, that uh, were reformed or more reformed. And uh, that's the worst thing to say to a young man. Uh, <laughs> it means you will read those sections. And I was persuaded uh, by the uh, profound biblical foundation of Reformed theology. Uh, that led me to Westminster, where, as, as you say, I, uh, Sinclair Ferguson had just arrived. It was the early 80s then. Al Groves, uh, Ray Dillard, um, Tremper Longman, um, Rick Gamble, Claire Davis. Uh, they were all on, on the teaching staff at that time, Moses Silva, um, Harvey Kahn. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a great time to be a student uh, at Westminster. Um, I did well, uh, and Sinclair um, encouraged me to apply uh, to do a PhD, and I received a grant uh, to do my studies uh, in Durham, and so went there uh, and got my PhD uh, for free, which uh, isn't a bad thing. Absolutely not. I know quite a few men that are very envious of a free education, <laughs> me being one of them. Uh as well as being a pastor, you also um, are a blogger on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and you regularly blog for Meet the Puritans. And so I have to ask you, who is your favorite Puritan or Puritans? Well, I tend to gravitate toward uh, the Anglican Puritans. Uh, Richard Sibbs has, has been important uh, for me. Uh, but I would suppose the, the, real, the real one that's drawn me the most over the years is the first one. I read, and that would be John Flavel. I remember uh, picking up that first volume of the six-volume uh, Banner of Truth set, and uh, with anticipation, uh, reading through the wonderful uh, text of the Fountain of Life. There were parts of it that just uh, knocked me back. Uh, his piety, his humility, his love for Christ uh, struck me in such a way uh, that uh, I've never really put him back on the shelf. Who, who would you say is one of the more uh, complex uh, Puritans to read that maybe people shouldn't, new, new beginners into the Puritans shouldn't grab right off the shelf right away? Well, I think, I think Goodwin and Owen would be the, the first choices that, that can be difficult. Um, you need to acclimatize yourself. Uh, to their style and language. It's a bit like going to see a Shakespeare play. Uh, at the start, uh, you may not be aware exactly what's going on in the language, but the longer you immerse yourself in the play, uh, the clearer it becomes. And uh, Owen and, uh, and Goodwin are, are great resources. It just takes a bit more time. Uh, so uh, perhaps a, a, a closer rung in the ladder uh, would be to turn to someone like Sibs or uh, to someone like Flavel. Now, is there something that you have really captured? I'm sure there's there's a lot of content that you've walked away with over the years from the Puritans, but is there something that's galvanized your trajectory in, in the way you understand Scripture that you attribute to the Puritans specifically? I think the, the for me it's always been the uh, the priority of Christ and union with Christ. The beauty of Christ, uh, 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 our Savior, is uh, one we adore. Um, 
the there's a way in which uh, the Puritans couch uh, their their language. It's uh, it's learned and it's doxological. I think the other thing for me has always been the priority of grace alone, by faith alone, and uh, the way in which uh, all of that comes together in uh, in the Christian life to see clearly uh, the remaining presence of sin in the believer's life. I think at each stage of uh, my adult life, uh, the Puritans have spoken directly to that contact point where I can see God working providentially through trial and his, with his loving hand uh, to draw me ever closer uh, to my Savior. And uh, I can't get enough of it, really. So uh, I study the Puritans, uh, mostly, I think, devotionally. Uh, It was never a direct academic study. My PhD is on the prophetic office of Christ in the theology of John Calvin. Uh, So uh, for me, Calvin's always been, you know, the great uh, go-to academic place. But uh, for myself and my soul, uh, the Puritans are uh, the road I want to walk. There seem to be many that push back on um, reading the old dead guys, if you will. And they'll say, you need to be reading the modern guys. You need to be entrenched in the context of today that too many people are trying to relive the puritanical lifestyle that just doesn't meet to the 21st century. What do you say to responses like that as far as the importance of reading these uh, these giants in the faith? Well, to be honest, it will depend really on who's asking the question. Um, if it's someone young, I think um, I would point out perhaps gently that they're uh, they're over they're over um, stating uh, their argument. Uh, as a modern person uh, living in our culture, of course, we always bring our modern perspective uh, when we read uh, these great. Uh, believers uh, of the past. Um, And with that, I tend to then take the next step and say, and of course we know in our own day and age, many, too many really, uh, leaders, pastors who have, uh, who've sadly fallen uh, into sin, uh, have lost their influence. Uh, It seems not a year goes by without another uh, headline on social media uh, that another uh, man has uh, has gone. The great benefit of uh, reading those who have gone before is simply this. Uh, they're in glory now. For them, the race is over. Uh, like the book of Hebrews tells us, they're in the stands uh, cheering us on. So uh, it, it does us well to listen carefully to how they're encouraging us. Uh, they've fought the fight. And they've kept the faith. Uh, And I think I can learn from that. Um, I'm not that old yet to think that I have everything figured out. (laughs) I may have thought that when I was younger, but not now. Do you you see, um, because in your background, obviously being born in a Dutch family, um, and then your experience in the Baptist uh, Bible College, but then engaging in some of Reformed writers, um, and then eventually finding your way into the Anglican Church. 
what kind of appreciation do you particularly have for confessionalism, for Catholicity? Um, obviously, the position you stand in today speaks strongly to that, but just for the benefit of those of us that are maybe still wrestling with the role of confessions and creeds in the development of our faith versus, as many try to say, in opposition to the Bible. Well, I don't believe there's that tension. I believe they work together, but I want to hear you speak to that, if you would. Well, I wouldn't say that I came to it instantly. I think it's something that's done gradually over time. I remember at first I noticed ways in which um, in the epistles of the New Testament, in the Acts of the Apostles, you already have the beginnings of what are statements, uh, summaries of, uh, of the uh, life we have in Christ. There are ways of expressing doctrine the patterns and language and structure uh, were repeated uh, across the New Testament. And uh, and then over time, learning that that after the apostles uh, and the period of of the New Testament had ended, the church continued in that way uh, as the great creeds of of the church uh, were formed. Uh, And then to realize that uh, in the Reformation, Another great period uh, with the rediscovery, really, of uh, salvation by grace alone, faith alone, uh, was, uh, was set uh, clearly uh, before the world. So I started to realize that uh, the nature of creed and confession was such that uh, it uh, is meant to uh, be faithful uh, to the scriptures uh, as a subordinate uh, standard. It helps me um, in clearly uh, uh, explaining uh, the doctrine of the scriptures uh, to my congregation. I've sent my congregation many times through the 39 Articles of Religion. Each time, a different section of the articles uh, becomes the point where a lot of great work is done in their understanding of the gospel. It's a point of discipline for our ministers as well. Uh, so that we can guarantee uh, the truth uh, for the next generation. It also becomes a witness uh, for the world. It's to say, this is where we stand with Christ, and we can articulate our faith clearly. So it has an an element of evangelism uh, in its purpose. It's pedagogical in its purpose. It has a purpose in authority and discipline all gathered under the word of God. So as an instrument um, that God has provided to us uh, through the church, uh, I think it's something that we should not dismiss lightly or too quickly. And along with that, the, the standard which we set for those who are coming into the ministry, the expectation of uh, subscription to the confessions, how strict are you on that subscription? Well, in, our, in my world, in the Anglican world, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, globally, uh, the uh, notion of subscription is well established. Uh, in the United States, uh, it is not so. Uh, this is a new um, uh, emphasis that's come as uh, Anglicanism globally has sought to define itself afresh 
in light of uh, the declension and continuing liberalism in the Anglican Church uh, in the West and in the United States. So uh, when I begin a discussion uh, with uh, my, my brothers uh, in North America, it's always to say uh, that uh, subscription is always done with the scriptures in one hand and our um, articles in the other. That uh, you may take uh, exception uh, to what the article says, but you must do it through the scriptures. You must prove it through the scriptures uh, within the college of uh, presbyters and pastors. Um, and in that way, all of us gain. It's like the old image that as the water rises, all the boats float. There, there's nothing wrong I've ever found with a, with a humble and prayerful uh, discussion of uh, the points of the articles alongside the scriptures. I think because we have that kind of discussion, it also deepens our prayer life because we end up praying for one another. Uh, that we would have an ever deeper illumination, a greater clarity of uh, the gospel and our Savior Christ. Now, and I have to ask this question because, as I said, for many of us, Anglicanism is, is an, it's not new, but it's newer in the sense of our understanding maybe of it. Um, here you came in, and if I could say it in this way, you weren't born into it. You weren't a cradle Anglican like J.I. Packer was, but yet it was a it was a uh, a religious decision for you that this is this is the direction to head. Help us understand that journey of an individual who wasn't born in Anglicanism, and and ends up there as an Anglican priest. Well, I think in some ways um, uh, my my journey may be a typical one. Um, at the time uh, when I was at Westminster and my studies and uh, beginning to focus ever more deeply in the Reformation, I, uh, I had begun to study the Book of Common Prayer uh, and for its theology um, and uh, noticed uh, very quickly how amazingly uh, biblical for someone who was from a Dutch Reformed background, that is, um, how amazingly biblical and uh, gospel-oriented uh, the, uh, the prayer book was. Uh, and then to go um, and to uh, worship in a Reformed Episcopal church. There was one just down the road from the seminary at St. Paul's, and uh, to actually use the prayer book for the first time. And to, in a way, uh, appreciate the limitations that it set uh, in very clearly establishing for me why I was there uh, to, uh, to come and give uh, thanks to God for my salvation and the salvation of those elect that have come into his kingdom, to uh, hear his word, both uh, uh, read and preached, uh, to uh, receive his great gifts in uh, the word preached and sacrament, and to then offer my own prayers for the needs of both body and soul. Each, uh, each morning prayer and evening prayer in the Book of Common Prayer starts off in that way with that exhortation. And uh, it was really over time, I think, uh, then uh, going to England 
Uh, and believe it or not, uh, the Church of England's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started to attend uh, an Eng a Church of England parish uh, to participate uh, in worship there and realized that, wow, um, uh, the gospel's preached, uh, the sacraments are faithfully administered, uh, and uh, over time in discerning my vocation, uh, had found a home uh, within the Church of England and within Anglicanism. What I hear you saying is it, it, it was the 39 articles, the confession of faith. It, it was experiencing and tasting the worship and seeing the, uh, the mag magnificence of God and that he is to be worshipped. These are the things that I hear you saying. What I don't hear you saying is that there were a particular author or, or were there authors that attributed early in that development? I think, um, for me, it's sort of a backdoor, really, um, in that sense of authors. I remember um, being very grateful for the preaching ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones and then hearing of his appreciation of uh, the 18th century uh, English evangelicals. Uh, and so uh, reading uh, George Whitfield and his sermons uh, became important for me uh, at that time. And uh, to also uh, just learn more of what happened around me uh, when I was in England as far as the uh, great evangelical revival. Um, I think that's what started it. And then to at that time, uh, John Stott was still alive. And he was still uh, the uh, vicar of All Souls in Langham Place. Um, the others that were there, Dick Lucas, uh, was still in ministry. And so gradually appreciating um, the evangelical uh, wing of the Church of England uh, and realizing that it was Reformed and evangelical. So in the end, I think for me, it was very much the theology of Anglicanism. Uh, its confessional structure, um, and uh, its simple piety, really, that was grounded in the Book of Common Prayer, uh, that became the rhythm and uh, mainstay of my Christian life. Were there particular um, aspects of the, um, the worship that just naturally drew you? And I heard you say already, the morning and evening prayers. Um, what about the aspects of communion? The, the, and I view that as different from your, your growing up in the Dutch Reformed Church in that in the, uh, in the setting of the Anglican Church, the Lord's table is front and center as opposed to in a Dutch Reformed Church where maybe the pulpit is front and center. Are, are, were those things things that you wrestled with in your head or just things that you naturally came to appreciate? Initially, I was, I was pretty unaware of the nature of the architecture around me. And uh, the, the thing about the 1662 uh, Book of Common Prayer, uh, Lord's Supper um, order, is I didn't see much difference, frankly, in its theology of the presence of Christ and uh, what I was receiving uh, in that, uh, how that sustained me as a believer from what I had uh, known uh, in my early Dutch reform days. Uh, mindful, of course, I wasn't receiving the supper um, when I was a boy. Uh, that would only come after uh, 
I had made my catechism. Uh, so uh, not a lot of experience of that, but when I went to check back uh, to make sure things were okay, quote-unquote, um, I didn't really see much difference theologically. Hmm. And of course, I you know the the, the age old argument of well the Anglican Church really just started because of the sin of Henry VIII. Um, I know when you and I've talked off Mike um, that you you very clearly and very sharply said well Presbyterians believe in the providence of God don't they <laughs> and absolutely we do but is there anything else you could kind of help uh, my listeners grasp in the idea that. The Anglican Church isn't just ex- didn't just e- exist simply because Henry VIII wanted more wives. Yeah, I think um, again it depends on who asks me the question. Um, I, it depending upon uh, uh, the stance they take. I do like to gently point out that if their heritage is English speaking, uh, th- they were Anglicans too once. Uh, so we were all Anglicans once, don't you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, and depending upon their response, I'll either get my coat or uh, carry on a bit, and uh, and do gently speak in terms of uh, the way in which um, God uh, reached through the life of Henry Tudor uh, to draw uh, many uh, to Himself. Uh, by grace, um, in the way in which we see so often repeated uh, in the scriptures. I'm always mindful of how Daniel begins, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, comes and lays siege to Jerusalem and takes Jehoiakim and the wealth of the city uh, as captive. Yet it says the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. Um, and I think as as believing Christians, as confessional and Reformed Christians, both Anglican and Presbyterian, Dutch Reformed, Reformed Baptist, we all confess that split screen, as it were, of what we can see and what we profess and pray of God's working. But then to note his autograph in the scriptures, in history, how he used that time and that man in such a way to change the world uh, for Christ. Consider how much came out of that uh, in the witness for the gospel as it was brought around the world as the British Empire spread uh, to all corners of the earth and the gospel and mission went with it. Hmm. Let's let's spend a few minutes talking then about the Anglican worship. Uh, coming from my background as well as yours, both in the Reformed camp, traditionally is where we we um, the Dutch Reformed or the Presbyterian, where we all find our roots as well. And 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 the idea of the regulative principle, and that we should only do those things which Scripture commands us to do. Anglicanism definitely takes a a, a different spin on that. In, um, in 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 the sense of vestments and uh, um, prayers and, and these types of things. Explain maybe your journey through some of those more detailed aspects of worship and how you were affected um, and through your development. Well, I think, first of all, 
um, I was always aware of what I didn't know and uh, always uh, wanted to uh, work uh, and examine respectfully and carefully uh, with my brothers uh, in other denominations. Um, I, I've often wondered uh, to what extent uh, the terminology, regulative, normative, how helpful it is today. Um, I understand its history. I understand why it's there. But I do wonder a bit, uh, and always have, if, if I can be uh, frank about that. Uh, and I, I, I'll explain why. Um, in my studies, uh, I noticed uh, early on uh, in Calvin, uh, in Knox, that uh, set prayers uh, of a type that um, uh, uh, we're talking about uh, as being so-called so typically Anglican or typically liturgical uh, were used regularly. So um, I suppose we could suggest that they had some form of uh, unformed understanding, perhaps. I'm not sure. Uh, Calvin uh, isn't like that, really. Uh, I think he understood, of course, those things that we will do in worship that does not act contrary to the scriptures. So I would never wear vestments that would say, uh, suggest that I have a, a sacerdotal uh, role as priest before an altar, uh, making a representation of the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, I think, yes, in those ways, um, uh, the normative, regulative uh, matrix would all say the same things. Then when we start to talk about, well, what is commanded? What, what is that? And if it's not commanded, we don't do it. Um, I don't know. Uh, when I, the vestments that I wear, um, I, would, I would think that um, could be worn by a, a Dutch Reformed pastor, uh, a preaching gown. Uh, I wear an undress gown and cassock. Uh, with my preaching tabs, uh, when I take uh, a ministry of the word service, uh, and I dare say I've I've been in congregations uh, over my life where good reform pastors have worn the same vestments I wear today. Hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Uh, not my fight, really. I'll leave that to their. Uh, to their presbytery meetings <laughs> to, to sort out. Um, then when it comes to the Lord's Supper, uh, I do wear the surplice um, because uh, the rubric originally said that it should be worn. It doesn't say how often, however. Uh, so you find then when you research a bit of uh, the history of Anglicanism in the Church of England that... Uh, men would uh, wear the surplice twice a year, and uh, that was deemed sufficient by their bishop. Another diocese, a bishop would insist that the surplice be worn all the time. So there wasn't that, um, uh, how shall we say, a, a singular voice that came to the forefront uh, within Anglican uh, polity and ordinance in worship. Now, when we come to the Oxford movement and the changes, uh, particularly in North American Anglicanism, yes, 
there is a significant difference uh, at times. And uh, um, the, that to me is more down to a movement rather than uh, a fidelity uh, confessionally uh, and uh, with the historical formularies as we call them, the, uh, the uh, Book of Common Prayer, the ordinal of the ordination of bishops, priests, and deacons, and the 39 articles of religion. So we have a table. Uh, we um, kneel to pray uh, if we wish uh, or sit. Uh, we stand to sing. Uh, we use set prayers. Uh, our people come up to receive from a single cup and from a single bread loaf as we break it off. And as I recall, that's exactly how Calvin did it in Geneva. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll take I, your word for that because you're the expert on Calvin. <laughs> well, it's uh, it, it's kept me asleep at night, let's say, mm. and not tossing in worry that I might be getting it wrong. What other matters would you say are essential in worship? And what matters would you say are non-essential, if, if, if I could be so brash and say just divide those up for me? Oh, my. Um, I think I would uh, fall back on Article 19 and the way in which the church is defined as a congregation of, uh, of, of believing, faithful people, uh, a visible congregation. That's certainly necessary. Uh, where the pure word of God is preached, that is also necessary. And that the sacraments are administered according to Christ's ordinance. Uh, that is also necessary. Um, within our, our polity and tradition, uh, we do sing the Psalms, uh, and we sing through them regularly. Uh, we also sing the great uh, uh, canticle songs of the scriptures in the Magnificat, the Benedictus, the Te Deum, the uh, Nunc Dimittis. Um, I, I think that's about it, really. Um, if you want to go further than that, I'm not a liturgist, uh, so I suggest you uh, look at your uh, sheet for guests in the future to get a better answer to your question. <laughs> no. But I would, I would look to those essentials. Um, and then the form of the service itself, I think uh, it, it reiterates the gospel, doesn't it? Uh, we, we begin by confessing our need. Uh, and we, re we hear again um, the Ten Commandments, and we confess before God and for before one another our inability uh, to keep God's law, to hear his declaration of forgiveness from the Scriptures, and then the turn in praise and psalm, and to hear his holy word, and then be refreshed in the message of the gospel. Uh, and with thanks and praise, then come to him in prayer uh, and uh, to offer ourselves to him as a, a sacrifice of service. Um, the structure of worship uh, in morning and evening prayer and in communion is, is, is the same and, and, and has the same outcome. We begin confessing our need. We hear uh, the great story of the gospel we see hear it applied to us in the preaching. We respond in, in gratitude and thanksgiving and are sent out uh, to uh, serve him. 
uh, through the week. Looking at uh, my my grandmother was Anglican and she came over from England. Um, so she was Church of England. She came over to the States. And I know that she had a book of common prayer. And it's been one of those things that I think um, we look back and we say, well, there's all these different versions. And how do we know the good book of common prayer from one that maybe isn't so good? Well, I think the way you do it is to just ask a simple question. Uh, which, which book of common prayer is the one used in oaths of subscription uh, by your ministers? And that's the one you need to focus on. Because to that book is the one in which you would hold them accountable. It's the one where we profess is not contrary to the word of God. Uh, and in that sense, then, it's, it's 1662, uh, the edition that came out then. It's uh, pretty much exactly uh, the last version that Cranmer himself penned in 1552. Uh, there's some minor changes that can be significant, uh, that were put in place by the Restoration bishops that came with King Charles II uh, in 1660, 61, 62. Uh, but that would be the one I go to. Now, the language can be a challenge, but uh, frankly, Aaron, it's a bit like learning your times tables. It's just something you got to get through. <laughs> we'll take your advice on that, and we will. Uh, I know I will be picking up a uh, 1662 version just to um, for my own my own benefit. You, just the discussion about Anglicanism and and your openness has been a real blessing to me. I would like to spend some time talking about your ministry experience, and it is vast. Um, you have. Um, experience in the rural church as well as the poor urban church and now the the, the suburb a suburb church as well and yet in our conversations again off mic you had shared uh, that you, in each one of those uh, contexts you learned something and you learned something about the the people that you're ministering to as well as yourself and so I just kind of want you to step us through that um, each one of those contexts and what your takeaway has been. Okay, Aaron. Um, yes, uh, I think that uh, to begin, I was, uh, I was a curate, I was an assistant uh, minister uh, in a parish in the Fens of uh, southeastern Lincolnshire, about an hour north of Cambridge, uh, very agricultural um, and uh, a very wealthy agricultural area as far as the productivity of the land. Um, what I notice there, and I think in each of the places, is, is uh, the nature of sin uh, and how it was visible or invisible uh, and what hindrances uh, might get in the way of, uh, of a person uh, hearing the gospel. So uh, in, in Spalding, where I began, a wonderful parish and congregation, uh, it had a, a robust uh, music tradition in the Anglican choral uh, tradition, all-male choir, choir boys uh, singing even song uh, every week uh, in that way, uh, over a thousand on, uh, on the major holidays of the year. But I went out many times, uh, being the assistant, to take uh, ministry and service uh, in the countryside, in tiny 
uh, villages where if I didn't show up, there would be no worship that Sunday. Also to minister to them, uh, because the established church uh, oversees the soul care of all those within a geographical region. And what I noticed uh, in the countryside is uh, uh, the consequences of sin are invisible. Uh, people would rather be homeless than lose their car because their car got them to the fields to work. Um, isolation, uh, use of alcohol, addictions, abuse, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse uh, was, uh, was there, uh, but not seen because uh, that uh, farmlet, that uh, laborer's uh, house for a farm laborer was far away from everyone else. So when the cry goes out, no one hears except the Lord. So to work with them in a dangerous situation, agricultural work is very dangerous with the machinery uh, and the long hours uh, in various parts of the year because agriculture is 24-7. Uh, in that, in our modern world, I learned a lot about how to do that one-on-one -on -one, uh, with people in their homes. When I went to my first parish, I was made the vicar of St. Aidan's in Cleethorpes. Um, it, uh, it was uh, a parish that was designated by the Church of England an urban priority area, an area of acute uh, need. We had the second highest teenage pregnancy rate in all of the England. Uh, we had uh, uh, issues with uh, addictions and uh, uh, with heroin in particular, uh, neonatal death, uh, and uh, a lot of uh, domestic violence. This was because uh, the Cleethorpes and Grimsby, they were a great fishing port, uh, but in changes in international law, the fishing ceased overnight, and uh, the trawlers just did not go out one day, and everyone was thrown out of work. Uh, I knew three generations of families that had never known work. So for them, the uh, there was a hardness of heart that came after generations of injustice, really, of being uh, just tossed on the rubbish heap. Uh, by uh, their country and uh, by their isolation. Uh, so for us then, the, the issue was more of, how can I put this, uh, an institutional uh, sin. Uh, so for us, it was combining, uh, meeting their needs. We had issues with illiteracy, uh, with, uh, with getting people back into work by keeping um, the wealth in, in our neighborhood by being an advocate uh, for our parishioners um, and to then gather them together uh, with regular worship through the week uh, at lunchtime because they would all gather at the church. We had a, a regular uh, community lunch and a, a, a cooperative uh, in our kitchen uh, that could provide catering and baking. And uh, I borrowed the idea from Dick Lucas. He did the same sort of thing for those in the city at lunchtime in his parish, and uh, we saw the fruit there. When I came back to the United States, it was the Episcopal Church coming from the Church of England. It took me about four years to realize that my 
Henry. You're not in the Church of England anymore. The Episcopal Church is not the Church of England. Uh, and so once I had established that, I must confess, the, the question then was um, uh, suburbia and the, the comfort and wealth of suburbia is such that uh, the folks were numb. They, uh, they didn't really hear the gospel. They were indifferent to it. There was no sense of urgency uh, concerning it. And it seemed that the preaching ministry and then visitation started to assert itself uh, in a more pronounced way, realizing that uh, the uh, counseling I did came from the pulpit in most cases, and its application directly into their lives came through regular visitation. Um, and I learned uh, that uh, the old Anglican forebears were correct about visiting in your parish. Uh, it's the first step in what is, uh, you know, proper biblical church discipline to move from reacting to crises to actually being proactive in pastoral care uh, was the great lesson that I learned uh, in suburbia. I really, really appreciate your perspective on all three of those uh, contexts. What I, uh, too, have seen is there's obviously a great need in the rural context that in often ways, because it is uh, quieter or uh, more lonely, is often forgotten. But you describe there, you know, the abuse of of sexual abuse or, or drug abuse and these things we, we have seen even in my home state of Michigan in the rural context. And there are uh, kind of now rumblings of we need to get uh, churches planted there because a lot of the churches that are there uh, are dying or are, have already closed. And yet we all know of the, the poor need in the urban context and the discussion that you gave that these are individuals who not only sin but are being sinned against regularly. And the church needs to be awakened to that truth and, and the call for that. But then the the uh, the numbness, as you describe in the suburb context, which is uh, where I serve, and uh, and I think that's a good word that oftentimes describes it because we can bury our concerns or our sins with our comfortable lifestyles. And uh, that can be very dangerous, and the gospel can get lost in that. So very much appreciate your comments on that. I want to share a little bit, um, or have you share a little bit, about your journey um, in, in, in church planting, because church planting wasn't something you naturally sought to do, but in many ways fell upon your lap. And would you mind sharing your story of how that occurred? Yes, Um I was busy with the parish uh, here in southern New Jersey uh, and came back in 2001. As I said, it took me about three or four years uh, to find my feet. Uh, I had never ministered as a pastor in the United States, in my home state. And uh, as I was doing that, well, the National Episcopal Church was very busy. Uh, it uh, was moving at an alarming pace. Uh, toward the recognition of uh, same-sex attraction uh, as being something that can be celebrated uh, within uh, the Christian church, within the Episcopal church. And uh, before I could say, um, hello, I'm back, uh, it really kind of overtook things. Uh, and as the, um, the, the um, application of those changes 
uh, were felt in our state of New Jersey. The Bishop of New Jersey made it clear that he was going to be proactive and to um, advance uh, this cause and uh, to actually move it forward earlier. I realized that uh, I could no longer remain. I was caught, as uh, as we always are, uh, with uh, with three things. The first one was fear, uh, a simple fear of uh, would we be able to survive financially. Uh, there was a fundamental uh, lack of trust, really, in God's uh, providence, uh, and I had to confess that and to realize that. Uh, uh, he would look after us because we, as being faithful to us. The second thing was uh, my oath of uh, obedience uh, to the ordinances of the church embodied in the office of uh, of my fellow pastor, the, the bishop, the episkopos, uh, and my oath at ordination to uphold the scriptures. Um, I realized the more study I did, because in the Church of England when I was ordained, it wasn't an issue, that uh, this was not just uh, an insignificant issue, but uh, one that uh, affects everything. Uh, it affects the way we understand who we are in Christ, we, how Christ himself spoke of marriage. All of these things came tumbling into my life, and I realized it was time to go. Uh, what I hadn't realized was, uh, and I guess I should have really, was the effectiveness of my ministry over time in that suburban parish. When I came with a heavy heart to say, I think it's time for me to leave, I'll be resigning and seeking ordination or the transfer of my uh, letters of ordination to another Anglican province at that time, uh, not quite sure what, uh, and the vestry, our, our, our board, uh, said to a man, um, well, can't we stay together? Can't we go with you? And I was like, oh, uh, I hadn't thought of that. Um, I suppose, and I was literally thinking out loud, I suppose that means we'll have to plant. Oh, I don't know how to do that. Um, I'll get back to you. And uh, And so I went away. Uh, that was December, and then January, February, March, uh, sought out uh, a way to do that with the convocation of Anglicans in North America, the mission outreach of the Church of Nigeria. As a good Church of England man, I was very pleased that my orders would transfer very simply over to the Church of Nigeria uh, and be recognized globally within the communion, very important for someone like me. And then to find out the bishop was a good Reformed evangelical man uh, as well, and uh, to make that transition. Uh, when we informed the bishop of New Jersey of our intention, he uh, inhibited me immediately, uh, and I was deposed about two months later. Uh, and the plant began with that core group of uh, six families uh, about a month later after that. Uh, and we've been going ever since. Let's talk a little bit about your philosophy of ministry as a now church planter, as that kind of got, if I could use this phrase, dumped on you. Um, what did you do? I mean, obviously, church planting wasn't something you had been training for, preparing for all along. Um, how did you begin to 
acclimate yourself with this new role as church planter? Well, I think it began really because I had been praying about ways to discern revitalization in the suburban congregation I was in. And I, I, I asked the Lord perhaps to, to bring into my path a, a church planter, and he did. Uh, he was a PCA man uh, not far away. Uh, he had uh, attended Westminster Seminary also, but in sunny California. Uh, and so we had a lot in common. I learned a lot from him about how to do that, and with him as his guest, I attended Acts 29 events uh, and realized that, well, the entrepreneurial model isn't really my cup of tea. I'm not quite sure how this is going to work, and and was sort of ruminating on that a bit in the background. And then suddenly, as you say, uh, the cold bucket of water was dumped on my head, and um, I thought, well, what to do? Um, I think while I was going through a difficult um, discernment of when to leave and why I am leaving so that I could maintain my integrity before the Lord in my oath, uh, what sustained me were the pattern of office of prayer that I had known for the previous uh, 23 years uh, and uh, the way in which uh, both the word of God and God's sacraments had sustained me. And so as that as my, well, compass point, really, uh, I kept true to that. It had sustained me through many difficult times in ministry over the years uh, as I was refreshed in the gospel. And uh, so in a way, it became uh, the obvious consequence and strategy for our church plant uh, to, to proclaim Christ uh, within the polity and ordinance of uh, the confession of the articles, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, and a regular pattern of, uh, of liturgy together in worship. What would you say are some of the things that you see now as real blessings of being a church planter and, and uh, having all this vast experience that God has granted upon you over these many years? Well, um, one, the first one will be a, a big-headed, selfish one, um, and that is I got to pick the name. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought I'd be doing that, but... Uh, uh, that was like, oh, 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 that's cool. Um, golly, it's like naming a child. Uh, what do you, what, what, what? Um, and so that was actually quite fun. Um, I think the other thing was um, because you're starting fresh and you're the founding pastor, you are on, you understand the responsibility you have because you'll set the stamp for its first uh, expression generationally. Uh, for uh, for what is an Anglican parish, and so in that sense, again, it was uh, it was a thrill to uh, to in a way, you know, clear out the closet of all the things you accrue that gather in a congregation that's well established when you arrive, and to begin afresh. I think that was a great uh, benefit. It's wonderful not having a building. Uh, one of the things of being in the Church of England are, is the maintaining of these historic buildings, medieval structures, 
faculties, legal permissions to move even the simplest thing within the building, the maintenance of churchyards and all the regulations. Oh, my goodness. To have all that go away, I've never missed it one day. <laughs> that, um, and that's funny because so many church planners are, are stressing over getting a building. And here you're saying the freedom of not having one. No. No, brother. If I could sit you down with a cup of tea, I'd put you straight very quickly. Um, and uh, I think that the focus then in uh, in seeing the building very much as a preaching station, this is the place you come to hear the word of God preached, to receive the sacrament faithfully administered. But then as the liturgy does, it sends us out. And so the visible, invisible church can really be manifested in a fresh way in these established communities. Where I am, the population is pretty stagnant as far as moving is concerned. Um, you're dealing with generational uh, Christianity here. Uh, and so that takes time. You have to understand your context. That's what church planting uh, taught me. Uh, but to take care, to keep the structure of word and sacrament, don't drift into an entrepreneurial or worse, an attractional uh, um, uh, you know, temptation, but, you know, major on the majors, as uh, Scripture tells us. You, you seem to make church planting so simple when you, when you focus on those essentials. And too often, I believe, planters do get caught up on the non-essentials. They make it all about context, and sometimes the uh, gospel is lost in that. Would you agree? I think... My, my caution to a young church planter is to, is to beware of the way in which the gospel can be distorted. Uh, you know, we think we're thinking clearly. We think we're preaching clearly. But these, these fears that we may have about whether we're gaining traction, whether or not um, we're being effective, um, we tend to think too much about ourselves in that and not so much about how we are to meant to be fit instruments of God's grace. So that the real issue is where am I before the Lord? Uh, and where am I in my trust in the sufficiency of Scripture? Is Christ truly building his church? He does that through the preached word. Focus there. Don't make the mistake of seeing an issue pastorally with a member of your congregation as simply a matter of discipleship, and then realize in your visit that it's not discipleship that's the issue, but that poor person was never converted because they never heard the gospel clearly from your pulpit. Don't do that. Your call to visitation, your call to the sacraments and the preached word again the clarity of your you know the means of grace and and the the focus of pastoral integrity and mission is is so encouraging um and i'm hoping that our young church planters who are listening are soaking up uh, your years of experience and i guess one more question i have for you going through what you went through uh in the episcopal church as far as the um, movement towards open uh, uh, homosexual lifestyles and 
uh, how, what in words of encouragement do you have for young men as they begin to find their own denominations shifting, their, uh, their, their culture around them begin to seem uh, to be argumentative with them? Um, what, just what encouragement can you offer? Well, I think um, you, know, you need to guard your heart. Uh, I've said that before. I can't say that often enough uh, because uh, so much of pastoral ministry and gospel ministry is, is that. Um, don't let uh, your, your preparation replace uh, your life uh, devotionally uh, in Christ. Uh, the second thing is to be wise with the times, uh, like the men of Issachar. Um, not to let it obsess you, but uh, to recognize how God is indeed working, even in this great evil and trial of our time. Uh, and we may be just living through a time of declension. Uh, and to take comfort in the scriptures of similar times or within the history of, uh, of the church of God. And to see that in those darkest times, revival and renewal comes. I think a third thing uh, for me is, uh, again, to preach the gospel clearly. Stick with expository preaching. Let the word do the work. We live in a time now different from when I was born, when uh, the old illustration of the chasm of sin and the cross being the bridge and we're over here and God over there was simple to explain and people being churched understood it and came to Christ. In the 90s when I was ordained, there were blockages. The Christians were just plain weird or they were homophobic or they were anti-women and you had to talk through those roadblocks before you could get to the gospel. The great thing about today is that uh, folks today are so unchurched. They're on a completely different road. So you, all you need to do is share the Bible with them, read the scriptures with them one-on-one, -on -one, get to know them that way relationally, and let the Word do the work. It's just 2 Corinthians 4 all over again. Pastor... Henry, thank you so much, seriously, for sitting down with us. Uh, this has been such a blessing to me. I've been so encouraged by our conversations, and um, I hope that all of us have learned uh, from you in, these la in this last hour, not just about the Puritans, not just about Anglicanism, but about ministry and about the call to preach the gospel. So thank you so much for your time and your willingness to be on The Collective with us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Aaron. We hope to uh, everybody was blessed by this, and we hope that uh, we will uh, you'll join us back at another time. And uh, everybody, have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook.